welcome back to episode 62 of the All Things Strength and Wellness Podcast. I'm your host, once again, Robbie Burke, and we are brought to you by upmentorship.com, one of the top strength and conditioning resources available online today. To get instant access to almost 20 hours of online video, world-class strength and conditioning information, go to upmentorship.com and help support the show. This episode's guest was Christian Thibodeau. Christian is a world-renowned expert in everything and anything to do with strength training. Christian is most known for his extensive articles on TNation.com as well as the many books he has authored, including The Black Book of Training Secrets and Tearing Application of Modern Strength and Power Methods. On this episode, me and Christian discussed many topics, including advanced methods to develop size and strength, eccentric training, Olympic lifting, Christian discussed the differences between the Bulgarian, Russian and Chinese weightlifting systems, Christian's thoughts on CrossFit and much, much more. This was a really great interview guys and I really hope you enjoyed. One thing I will say is the audio on Christian's end was a little bit shaky but for the most part you can make out what Christian is saying so let's get into the interview. Okay, Coach Christian Thibodeau, it is an absolute pleasure and an honor to have you on my podcast. You're somebody I've been uh, looking to get onto the show for a long time now. You're someone who uh, definitely influenced me as a coach. Um, just for the listeners, Christian, who might be too familiar with who you are, which I would imagine won't be too many, just fill us in on your background. Uh, well, actually, uh, well, first of all, thank you for having me. Um, uh, as far as my, my background is concerned, uh, I've worked with... Uh, from 26 or 27 different sports now that you can cross it as a sport. Uh, as an athlete myself, I competed uh, in football, American football, for nine years. Then competed for uh, weightlifting for six or seven years, something like that. Uh, then got injured, switched to powerlifting, and then that led to bodybuilding. So I basically experimented with uh, weightlifting, powerlifting, uh, even did some strong events, uh, but at five foot eight, that's not really. Now, it'd be 
teaching people about the best way to train and training CrossFit athletes. So right now, uh, you, you allow me to do one of the, the things I like the most doing. <laughs> Thanks a million. Uh, same as me, I, I love to train and love to talk about training and I like to do with optimizing human performance. Uh, I saw you last May uh, here in Dublin, Christian. It was a brilliant two-day seminar, and uh, what really struck me was um, how how much of a, a love, essentially, I would say, you have for Olympic lifting. I always, I suppose, assumed you were a little more towards the bodybuilding end of things, but you actually were saying that you know, and you just even said it there that Olympic lifting really was sort of your first type of love. So, how how did that come about? How did you get into Olympic lifting? Uh, actually, it's true. Uh, most people know me from. Um, I work on Nation and my books and stuff like that. Uh, obviously, most of the work I've been doing there in the past was uh, mostly bodybuilding related or uh, at least strength related, building muscle basically. Mm. Uh, but what actually brought training was Olympic weightlifting. Um, what I did was, and I was a football player, American football player as a pension, and our strength coach was a former Olympic weightlifter, so right off the bat, Training I started doing included power clean, power snatches, deadlift, front squat, back squat, uh, push press, power jerk, stuff like that. So my first um, introduction to training, serious training, uh, came in the form of Olympic weightlifting. And when I stopped competing in, in Olympic weightlifting uh, in football, I was doing sport to continue doing, and uh, the natural progression was uh, toward the Olympic lift. Now. Uh, I, I don't have a problem with saying that, you know, I, I love that sport, I love watching it, I love coaching, that, that's my main interest. Uh, when I competed, I was actually a pretty bad lifter, <laughs> well, I was a really strong lifter, you know, I, I could back squat, um, I think it was uh, 280 kilos, mm -hmm. uh, and um, I could deadlift about the same front squat, 220 kilos, uh, push press on 60 for 5 reps. Uh, but my actual result in the Olympic lift was poor because even though I started out uh, football training with somebody who was an Olympic weightlifter, we didn't get much technical coaching. Yeah. So I started doing the actual Olympic lift training while being super strong and never actually learned proper technique. Uh, it's only recently that I started really working on, on learning proper technique. I would say like about five or six years ago when I started to work with more athletes myself, uh, that's why I got my second introduction to the Olympic lift. I basically competed for six years, then stopped doing the lift altogether for 10 years, then got back to them when I started including them more in my own training. Mm. Uh, so yeah, basically the Olympic lifts are uh, my main love, and I'll tell you why. First of all, because they combine all the elements I like about training, which is strength, power, and athleticism. I mean, you need speed, you need flexibility, you need everything. Uh, it also gives you a distinct look. I mean, uh, you get the look of power, a muscle that's hard, that tone, uh, that you don't get from typical bodybuilding training. And also, personally, what, what I like about it is that I'm always looking for ways to improve myself, and I like to solve problems. I don't see myself as a coach. I see myself as a problem solver. And the Olympic lift, they are so complex and there are so many things that can go wrong, both technique-wise and strength-wise, that you always have something to work on. You always have a problem to solve. So to me, it really appeals to my problem-solving approach. Mm. 
Christina, I always ask my guests this question because I, I, I'm always interested to, to, to find out who has kind of shaped my guests in their life. So uh, who would you say have been the biggest influence on you, both as a coach and then as a person? Well, as a coach, my first influence uh, was my, the, my original football coach, who was actually also a strength training expert. Mm. We actually got to work together uh, afterwards. He, he was the one who to introduce me to strength coaching. Uh, he was training several pro hockey players, and uh, he, well, he had a busy schedule, and I started working with him. Uh, he, he was the guy who had probably the greatest influence on my own training. The guy was a no-nonsense, back-to-the-basic kind of guy, uh, power power cleans, deadlift, bench press, push press, all that stuff, chin-ups, really a minimalist approach. And when you look at my training, even though I use a myriad of training methods, I always stick to the basic exercises. Yeah. My programs are very simple as far as exercise selection is concerned. And that goes back to that, that original guy. His name is uh, John Bouquet. I mean, nobody knows about him because he never like he wasn't around when the internet uh, like was uh, started like going on. And the guy is old school, so but he's probably the smartest guy I know about training, like very research and stuff like that. Uh, he also really helped me as a person because I mean when I was a kid I was I was actually pretty weird. <laughs> I was an antisocial. I was uh, like big self-image issues. Uh, you know, no confidence in myself, and that guy trusted me the first time. So he actually gave me tremendous amount of confidence, the confidence to start working with pro athletes, the confidence to start working on a, uh, starting uh, writing a book, uh, the confidence to start giving conferences. So I would not be here if that guy didn't uh, take me under his wing at first. Mm. Now, if we go back uh, after that guy, my, my second influence uh, like many, many French Canadian strength coach was uh, Charles Pollican, mm. who's actually a, a pretty good friend now. We gave some conferences together. I consider, uh, I consider him to be the father of modern strength coaching. Now, let's be honest here. We wouldn't be making money if Charles didn't make strength coaching popular. Yeah. He was the first to really think outside the box. I mean, before him, uh, most strength coaches were either old powerlifters, old Olympic weightlifters, old bodybuilders who were really like stuck in their own belief and, and had great success because they were good at what they were doing, but it was pretty limited. Charles was the first one to seek answers for many, many different places, always giving credit to where credit was due. So in a sense, he really made strength coaching what it is today, and I'm, I'm proud to come at uh, actually, before my hunt, that's pretty cool. Uh, mm. uh, so, but if, if you look at who influenced me be, beside that, you know, I can't pinpoint anybody in particular because, you know, uh, personally, uh, I take away from anybody. I mean, it can be the average guy in a gym that just got a great idea for an exercise or a training method by by accident. You know, I can learn from that guy just as much as I will learn from an Olympic champion. Yeah. I have zero ego, personally. All I want to do is learn the best way to work a muscle, the best way to get stronger, the best way to get bigger and more powerful. I don't care who gives me the answer. So in that regard, I don't, I'm not starstruck. I'm not somebody who's looking for, who's looking for answers from the big celebrities. Uh, if something is, is intelligent and smart, I'll use it. 
That having said, I would say that my biggest influence uh, currently uh, and for many, many years have been the strongmen from the past. Mm. I mean, Vitilio, Bern, uh, Reinhardt, uh, all the guys from even Louis here, uh, old Canadian Frenchman. Uh, strongmen from the past were innovative. They, they didn't have any mental block about trying something that might look goofy. Uh, they didn't have the internet, so they, they really had to experiment for themselves, learn what really worked, and they did it without drugs, even without supplements. So they had to work extra hard to find the best training method. And I believe that uh, you will learn more these guys than from, from most modern-day experts. It's, it's funny you say that because years ago I was doing a, a course it was actually a Poliquin course, but uh, Owen Lacey, um, who used to work for Charles and John Connor, I think John may still work for Charles, he might have left, but Owen Lacey said that, he says, if you want to really learn about true strength methods, uh, buy any book uh, before like 1930, he was saying, and, and see what those guys were doing. But uh, ch even ch Charles is a big proponent of uh, uh, Anthony Dertillo's books. I have those, the great yeah. books yeah you can get those i think from is it superstrengthbooks.com i think there's a guy bill bill i can't think of bill's second name but he does the books so um yeah that's, i really do agree i love reading those old old time books because you're right like there's just like no there's of course no drugs no supplements so they really had to figure out what was working back then well, nowadays obviously we know more of the human body yeah than it is back then but i honestly believe that even with less knowledge, these guys were better at getting stronger than we are today. Yeah, today, yeah. we probably are better at preventing injuries, solving injuries, correcting imbalances, evalu evaluating individual problems, stuff like that. All the huge stuff that you need uh, to get a, like an institution job in strength coaching. Yeah. But back then, they really knew the best method to get stronger and faster. And also, I think that also comes from their mindset. These guys, first of all, they didn't rush it. Nowadays, it seems that you know, if you gain 50 pounds on your bench press in three months, that's too slow. That's, yeah. that's like 100 pounds in a year or even more. People uh, are eager. They, they want to rush their gains, and they don't let training do its thing. I mean, training is a long-term process, and back then, they, they understood that. Uh, strength has to be cultivated. It's something that you have to nurture to get. Uh, so back then, they knew that attaining strength was a lifelong process. Nowadays, it, people want to be Mr. Olympia in less than a year. They want to be uh, like a world-class power in six months. It doesn't work like that. Back then, they had more patience, and because of that, they, they, they really took the time to find out what method worked. Nowadays, it seems that I'm going to try that program. After two weeks, I'm not huge. It doesn't work. You know, that, they weren't like that. I mean, they would stick with a method for 12, 16, 20 weeks. You don't see that nowadays. Yeah, but yeah. that way, they really learned what worked and what didn't work. Also, another point of their mindset was that they saw training as practice, not as a test. <laughs> nowadays, I see people testing themselves way too much in the gym, testing themselves on how much punishment they can absorb, uh, how much weight they can lift. Uh, for example, a CrossFit, a typical CrossFit, uh, in CrossFit boxes, uh, I, I, 
complete every single workout as it gets because you go to your absolute limit. That doesn't make sense. Training is not testing yourself. Training is preparing yourself for a test. Training is practice. Back then, strongmen practiced their craft. They didn't go to their limit weight. They, they, they stuck to ways that they could manage with perfect technique. They tried to make a heavy weight feel easier and easier over time instead of just trying to put more weight in the bar. That way, they got super strong, never got injured, and they could perform their feats of strength every single day. Nowadays, people need a week to be able to perform at their best. They need a peaking week to be able to be in shape. Back then, these guys perform at a pretty high level every single week. Mm-hmm. They had to because many of them were uh, like earning a living that way. It was a it was a lifestyle to them guys because even like you know Hackenschmidt's book you know it was called the way to live so it, as you said it wasn't just about you know going to max every day or it wasn't just about getting a bigger bench or a squat in twelve weeks it was it was a way of life for those guys and I think I think another reason is too the, the reason probably why they got such good results is because they actually had less choice and I've often heard like people like Jack White the musician and Dan John say like. You, you know when, when you actually have less choice you actually get better results because you, you actually like have less opportunity to you basically you basically have a less chance to paralyze yourself from over analysis so when you've got less choice you usually actually get better results so like for instance like nearly everyone forgets just like basic progressive overload principle and like if you read any of those old school books or like lift a weight for five reps when you can lift this weight for 10 reps up the weight two and a half pounds and start over again it's just like <laughs> John talks about systematic education he's like you wouldn't go into school like on day one and be like right algebra he's like there has to be a systematic education process about it so he's like it's the same with lifting like you just can't go in day one and be like alright let's do some max benches or beds or whatever it is people look at the Bulgarian system and they think that all Bulgarians live like that so I'm going to train like a Bulgarian and they have like two months of training in the Olympic lifts in Bulgarian lifters don't use the elite method, quote, unquote, until they have many, 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 many years of progressively more demanding training. They might start at three weekly sessions doing sets of three reps, and eventually they add session after session. 
it takes maybe seven to eight years to build up to that level. Now, unless you, it's like I see that often. Young kids, they, 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 let's say I'm a football player, I'm going on the internet, and I want to see what uh, the San Francisco 49ers are doing for training program. So they, they will copy that training and do it, while these guys probably have 50 years of training under their belt, and the kid has like one year, and he doesn't even know how to perform the lift properly. I mean, don't skip steps. I mean, if you want to be a champion, do what the champion did at your level of development, not what he's doing right now. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's. I heard Chad Wesley, Chad Wesley Smith from Juggernaut say this. He said that he was at a he was at a seminar back in December 2013 with Illy Ilium and uh, and Clockoff, and he said that like people at the seminar were like, "So, uh, Clockoff, uh, what are you doing now in your training?" And uh, like Chad Wesley Smith was like, don't ask him that. Ask him what he was doing 15 years ago. You know, one thing that Clockoff said, I mean, one thing that Clockoff said is that you know, he doesn't actually snatch or clean and jerk that often. Yeah. Because he already masters the lift so well that all he needs is to get much stronger. So he will use probably a wider variety of exercises versus what a beginner should be using. Mm. So uh, that's a perfectly good example, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I suppose uh, the next question that I usually ask is, is problems that you see within the strength and conditioning profession now you've, you've actually touched on a lot of a lot of kind of issues there in regards to kind of people uh, jumping the gun and, and not kind of earning their craft or earning their time under the bar before they start using more advanced methods but let's just fr- from a coaching perspective what, what would you say are the biggest problems you see within the strength and conditioning profession yeah there is one problem that is the root of with the strength training community, and that's ego, in my opinion. I mean, uh, too many strength experts, quote unquote, or just regular coaches, are too ego driven. That leads to several issues. It leads to the issue of disregarding anybody you see as below you. I mean, uh, I mean, as I mentioned earlier, I, I will learn from everybody. I don't care. I mean, if somebody the street tells me I tried this and it works great now I'm not going to look at him and say well well who are you who have you trained I don't care if it works it's smart I will put it in my toolbox that's because I don't have any ego uh, okay well uh, then you have also uh, other issues that can come with that I mean if I have a big ego I will coach clients to show them what I know instead of giving them results. You know, I've seen too many coaches. I mean, I know just as many advanced training methods as anybody on the planet. Mm. Now, I, will, I will go on record saying that. But when you look at my training plan, they don't use that many methods. But I will see coaches who want to show so much how smart they are that they will use like 10,000 different methods the same program. I mean, you need a PhD just to understand what's written in the program. Yeah. I mean, what good is that? I mean, will that get the athlete stronger? No. It will actually get him more confused. Uh, when, I was, uh, when I was working in St. Louis uh, at, the, at the Central Institute for Human Performance, which was the, uh, the official team of the St. Louis Blues in the National Hockey League, uh, Andre Benoit, who uh, is Charles Falkman's uh, second-hand man. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know Andre, yeah, I know him. Now, he was the one who hired me, so uh, uh, he's a hawk, he asked me, well, Christian, what's the most important thing uh, 
to have success training a client. You know, back then I, was, I really thought that I was like the stuff. I mean, I, I already wrote a book. I was on Team Nation. I mean, I must have known my stuff, right? So I told him, well, you know, it's, Andre, it's pretty simple. You have to select the proper exercises to respect the individual biomechanics of the client to make sure that you optimize the training response. You look at me like with these big fish eyes. What the hell are you talking about? Well, so, well, okay, and it's probably the selection of the best training methods to create the physiological response you want from your training. So not even close. Well, what the heck is the most important thing then, Andre? He told me the most important thing is that the client has to be first motivated by his training and trust the training and the coach 100%. Mm. If you act like somebody wants to show up by showing how intelligent you are, you will actually turn off the client. You will actually stop listening to you. If the program is complex, when he's by himself, he'll look at the program, he won't understand anything. If you don't understand what you need to do, you won't have confidence doing it. You won't get results. So coaches need to coach for their clients, their athletes, not for themselves. And I see the same thing among people who give conferences or seminars. They give conferences or seminars to show people how smart they are. And they use big words, big concepts, and stuff like that. They act like they're like on the top of the mountain. But really, how much are audience taking out of it? Not much, I'm telling you. And you have to teach people for them, not to show them how smart you are. That also comes from ego. So if you have a big ego, you won't listen to anybody. If you have a big ego, you will actually be less effective with your clients. If you have a big ego, you will not share information or not everything you want. You have because uh, you will want to protect your domain. I mean, I'm at the top of the mountain, so I don't want anybody to come close. Mm. Right? Personally, I believe in sharing as much information as possible. Now, I want to get along with everybody. I want to, uh, when I found something that works, you know, it actually itches me. I need to tell somebody because I want to communicate my passion. I found something that gave me great results, or I want other people to experience what I just experienced. And that's a great feeling. So I really believe that the biggest problem is ego. And now as far as training methods are concerned, uh, I believe that it's the big problem is that coaches often apply training methods or training approaches that they don't understand, right? Mm -hmm. I'll give you an example. Uh, I'm not a mobility guy, right? And I, I know the basics. Uh, I know how to do mobility work for myself because I know what are my individual problems. But it's never been something that passioned me. And I, I never bothered to really learn like the most advanced form of mobility work. So I will not pretend to be a mobility expert. When I have to create a mobility routine for a client, I'll go to a colleague of mine or somebody I work with who is specialized in that domain. But the problem is that nowadays, it seems that no coach can admit that he's not an expert in something. He's afraid that if he says, well, I don't know that, let me refer you to somebody else, that you will lose credibility. To me, it's the opposite. With the internet, anybody can find anything. So if you claim to be an expert on any aspect, People are not dumb. They will not get the results that you're prom promising them. Then they, they will go on the internet and they will find out that 
you really don't want to know what the heck you're talking about. So right off the bat, now you're screwed. They will never trust you again. And remember what I first said. The most important thing is for the client to have 100% trust in you and the program, otherwise you won't get results. Right? Yes. So to me, that also an ego thing. When you think about it, people can't admit that they don't know something. And they, uh, they will use a training method just because uh, they want to look smart. I mean, look at the Olympic lifts, for example. Great movements, great, great potential for athletes, improvement, stuff like that. But not everybody can coach and should use them. But there are other methods that can give you similar training stimulus. But because of CrossFit popularity, now Olympic lifts are the big thing. So any coach needs to know how to coach them, or so it seems. So if you don't know how to coach them, if you never did them yourself, then you're kind of screwed. But you will pretend that you know what you're doing, and you will screw up your athlete. So that's a big problem I see. And that's just not just Olympic weightlifting, that's plyometrics. I mean, plyometrics is seemingly it's simple, right? It's just jumping. Well, nothing is more uh, nothing is more problematic. Nothing is more badly done in North America and Europe as plyometric training. It's abused. It's done too much with too much volume, too frequently with bad exercises and bad focus. But it's popular, and if you don't use them, you look you look stupid, and you don't want them. So I, I think that it all goes down to either ego or lack of like that you can't admit that you don't know something or you don't know how to use something. Now it's one thing to know how to do a power clean. It's another thing to understand how it fits into a broader program. Yeah, yeah, big time. Christian, if, if I was to ask you what is your training philosophy or what are the training principles that you always abide by, what would your answer be to that? Uh, well, question. Uh, the, the thing is that I don't have system. You know, you have many options for successful having a specific system. Let's let's look at Jim Wender, for example, mm. with his 531. You know, now he has other systems that are similar to 531 but are not exactly the same. But they are all based on the same type of progression model. That's his thing. He masters that like tremendous. You look at Westside, they have a system. You have variation within the system, but it's the same system. It's a basic template that can be taught to anybody. Uh, you have many, many coaches who have built their career on the mass of one system. That's not how I think. I, I'm, uh, no, I, right up the bat, I will tell you, I'm not good at designing training programs. That's not what I'm good at. You know, I can design decent programs that will get results because I know the science. My strength is solving problems. Now, bring me an athlete. Okay, tell me this is his issue, his main issue. For example, let's say that, okay, his power clean is stopped because uh, whatever. And I will analyze this technique. I will pinpoint the issue and his power clean will go up 30 pounds or 15 kilos. Uh, that's, that's what I'm good at. You know, I have a, a pretty wide toolbox because of my background of doing pretty much everything personally, uh, that I can pick any tool I want of any issue somebody might have. So in that regard, I cannot say that I have a founding principle because I don't have a system. I mean, you can't have 
principles if you don't have a system because the system is made up of principles. Firstly, I don't have a system. I'll use high frequency training. Uh, I'll use more bodybuilding training with some some people, mm. uh, and they will be drastically different, um, polar opposite, really. Uh, so if I could give you one principle that would actually separate myself from most coaches is that I use what's called a concentrated approach. Why? Uh, and what is it? A concentrated approach is that I will focus on a very small number of specific issues mm. and I will like bomb them for four to six weeks until that problem is solved and it's no longer a problem. And then when I solve that issue, I will go on to something else, fix something else. So if I have one principle that, that is different than most people, that's the one. I mean, I use a concentrated approach focusing on one or two problem areas while maintaining the rest, and, and I focus all my energies into solving that one or two issues. Now, I believe that the, especially when you reach a certain level of performance or development, uh, you need a very intense stimulus to be able to progress. I mean, if you have a very intense athlete, his body is so well adapted to training that elicit further training response, you need a huge stimulus. Like, so, in my opinion, you either have that athlete train 30 hours a week, which is what pro athletes are doing, which is what Olympic athletes are doing, mm. but what most people can't afford to do. Or you pick one specific area you want to focus on and you blast it like for a, a very high volume, very high frequency for a very short period of time, putting the rest on maintenance level. So in regard, you're creating a very, very, very drastic training stimulus for one or two specific things. That will allow you to improve those things even if your body is well adapted to training and it will do so without creating such a systemic overload that you can't recover from it. So that would be my, my one principle that I apply with my clients that's different than m most people. One, uh, one question that I, well I have lots of questions, but one question that I really wanted to ask you was about uh, your ideas on eccentric training. Just reading through some of your articles, you were saying most people have it completely wrong with eccentric training. They they go with sub-maximal loads and go down really slow on it and you're more proponents of actually going heavier and faster with it to kind of recruit more of the type 2 muscle fibers you say so could you maybe discuss about your thoughts on eccentric training and how to utilize it to get the maximum benefit for strength and size gains well first of all I mean, there are benefits from lighter and slower eccentric but not for the reason that most people believe yeah most people believe everybody sees eccentrics as being effective for building muscle because it tears more muscle fibers, it creates more muscle damage. Well, first of all, I don't even believe in the muscle damage uh, theory of, of uh, muscle stimulation. I believe that microtrauma can have a role in stimulating hypertrophy, but it's not the main cause for the hypertrophy response, and it's certainly not necessary to create a uh, Hypertrophy. For example, just look at speed skaters or uh, or uh, like speed bikers, sprint bikers uh, who have huge legs, despite doing basically almost no eccentric loading, just because of uh, the constant tension their muscle is under. So there are many many other ways to make a muscle grow than than 
colossal damage. So in that sense, even if eccentrics were responsible for most of the damage, that wouldn't necessarily mean that they would be more effective at stimulating growth. That having been said, like, very slow eccentrics with a moderate weight will work, but not by carrying more muscle fibers. If anything, going slow on eccentric will create less muscle damage when you think about it, because there you're not you have much less steering action because you're doing slow under control. Mm. There's much less steering going on, but it can be effective, but by activating a thing that's called mTOR. mTOR is uh, is a mechanism that will initiate protein synthesis, yeah. and it's been shown that it's activated mostly by two forms of training: uh, eccentric time under tension and uh, loaded stretching. So in that regard, like slow eccentric action can have a benefit on stimulating muscle growth. So I don't completely disregard that. I use it for very specific training purposes. For example, like I want to isolate a specific muscle group uh, that is packing behind other muscles. By doing uh, like a few sets of very slow eccentric at the beginning of the training for that muscle, you actually make that muscle more the rest of the training session. So for example, if I'm doing bench press in that session uh, and my chest is my lagging muscle group, I cannot get it to fully stimulate, then I will do a few sets of a pectoral exercise, let's say a pec deck or something like that, with a very slow eccentric, like not non-fatiguing, just to activate the mTOR, uh, even with as little as 60% of your maximum, done very slowly on the way down, uh, you will actually activate the mTOR uh, maximally. So when you start the actual strength or heavy workout, that muscle will be made more responsive to training and will go better. You will actually also have uh, an enhanced perception of that muscle, which will improve the mind-muscle connection, which will make it easier to in uh, include the chest in the bench press or uh, any other muscle group that So that's for slow eccentric. So that's just one thing I want to mention. Now, as far as uh, the rest of the eccentric, I personally prefer uh, to use heavier eccentrics because the main benefit for me, right, uh, keep in mind that even though I don't have like principles per se, I believe in training for performance, mm. even if I want just to improve the look, right? So when I say performance, it doesn't necessarily mean to perform as an athlete. It means improving the performance of your muscles, performing work. So uh, I always approach training from that angle. So if from that angle, to me, the biggest benefit of eccentric training is an increase in the recruitment of the fast-switch fibers. Uh, it's been shown that during intense eccentric actions, you actually recruit fewer motor units, but you recruit preferentially the fast-switch fibers. So actually you recruit less fibers, but they're all fast twitch. So they do more work. So the eccentric uh, increases fast twitch stimulation and fast twitch recruitment. So to me, the main benefit of doing eccentric work is to teach your nervous system to recruit more fast twitch fibers, which will transfer to doing uh, heavy work afterwards or uh, in the, the next sessions. So that's why Personally, I, I, when I use a phase of accentuated 
maximal eccentric, uh, strain gains are very, very, very fast. I mean, for the first two or three weeks, it's not unusual to see a strain gain of 10 to 15 percent. For example, uh, well, when I was getting back in Olympic weightlifting, uh, I found that my squatting strength was now holding me back because when I trained more for bodybuilding, so I did so much squatting uh, as an Olympic weightlifter that I had even leg mass even without training legs hard. So I didn't do any squatting for about six years. But when I started back on the Olympic lift, I needed to up my squatting strength because it was severely lacking, uh, limiting me. Uh, and in a three weeks period, I was able to bring my squat from 180 to 220 just by doing uh, some form of reset coding. So that's like an amazing progress for two or three weeks. It went higher than that afterward, but for such a short period of time, that's a progress. Now, with centric overload training, you can get such a strength, but that will only work for two or three weeks for two reasons. The first reason is that the first or the most of the gains from heavy eccentric loading are neural. Mm. As I mentioned, it increases the recruitment of fast switch fibers. So a, a neural gain, the rapid neural gain stagnate or hit their peak at the two or three weeks mark. So if you extend that rate for more than three weeks, rate of progress would be much, 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 much slower. In fact, it would be so slow that that would be justifiable for the reason I'm going to mention. You know, eccentric loading, heavy eccentric loading is a tremendous stress on the body, both on the tendons as well as the muscle themselves and the nervous system. And if you do it for too long, you will actually start to regress. Your, your body will have a hard time to cover you, will be sore all the time. That's what actually happened to me. Even myself, I can do mistakes. Uh, I lose objectivity. And when I increase my squat so much in three weeks, what do you think happened? Well, I wanted, I wanted more. I want to get my, my level of strength to 70, to 80. So I start uh, continue on with eccentric. What did happen? I started to be sore every single day. So sore, even if I wasn't doing more eccentric volume, I got so sore that I couldn't even do the Olympic list because I couldn't even go into a quarter squat without feeling like pain in, in the quad. Actually, it took 10 days after I actually stopped doing legs until I could actually do a full squat without even any weight. Uh, so to me, eccentric, even heavy eccentric loading is best done for blitzes of two to three weeks uh, using supramaximal load. And you don't need that much volume, probably a total of three to six total reps with 100 to 110 to 115 percent of your maximum. Uh, I normally use weight releasers, which are strength hooks that are attached to the barbell. Uh, you can put weight on it, and when you go down, it will hit the ground and it will uh, act from the bar, releasing the weight. So you, actually, you can actually work the weights, then you, you can lift a lighter weight. So no more than six total reps of that uh, for two or three weeks for an exercise, maybe twice a week. That would be the most that you can do. And I will say, this, uh, I will say one thing. It's the exact same thing with plyometrics. And when I say plyometrics, I mean the more intense form of plyometric depth, depth jump. Depth jumps, yeah. depth jump. You are on the box, you let yourself drop down, and then you rebound jumping as high as possible. That's a very intense form of training that is abused. I mean, uh, Verkoshensky, who weighed 
wash up period of uh, at least two months after that, and no more uh, than 20 total contact time in a week divided in two sessions, or it can go up to 30 depending on your level. But it's still the same thing. It's it's very low volume and very low duration. It's a very effective method that will increase your power output very well for two or three weeks. Then it will give you more uh, have more up and benefit. It's the exact same thing with eccentric coding. And when you look at it, uh, a depth jump is actually an eccentric overload because you absorb the force of your falling body and you will actually absorb up to six times your body weight doing mm. a depth jump. So that's a tremendous eccentric loading. So depth jumps and a very heavy eccentric is the same thing. Very effective for rapid gains because it increases fast switch recruitment, uh, but it only works for two or three weeks. Yeah, yeah, that's great stuff, Christian. Um, I'm just getting, I'm, I'm writing down notes simultaneously here while I'm flipping back pages to the questions. Uh, w one thing that, that strikes me really about your training is you seem to be a big proponent of both specificity as in sticking with a lift for a certain period of time and also seem to be a big proponent of frequency. W why is that? Uh, remember earlier when I said about uh, the old-time strongman, mm. they saw training as practice. Well, I, I'm the same way. Uh, to me, uh, I believe that if you want to be really good at the lift, you need to practice it often. Now, I recently wrote an article on TNation.com called uh, Russian Strength Skill Training. Yeah, it's very I, good. I, yeah. Very good article. Just read it. I, I didn't come up with a title, but it was just called Strength Skill Training. But, you know, Russian spells more, I guess. Uh, but uh, the, the basic principle is that, you know, strength skill, you know, strength is not just a physical capacity. Yeah. It, it's actually a skill. Being able to demonstrate the strength you have, it has to be practiced. You can have somebody with really, really strong muscle. That doesn't mean that he will be strong at a lift. And even if he's strong at the, at the lift, doesn't mean that he will be optimum strong. Because, first of all, you need to master movement. You have to have perfect technique. The more efficient your technique is, the stronger you'll be on that lift or your strength level. You'll be able to use more of your, of your strength when you're practicing the movement. Another thing, though, people understand easily the importance of technique, uh, but there's so much more than that. Because after all, if you're talking about like a, a snatch or a clean and jerk, sure, it, it takes a while to master the technique. So it, it's understandable that you need to practice it often. But, you know, a bench press, it, it, that's not really complicated. Uh, so surely you can master a proper technique after a few weeks. But why practice it often? Well, because there's much more than just technique. There's enter and intramuscular coordination. You can look at two people from the side. Like they can have the exact same bench pressing technique, but one 20% stronger than the other, even if they have the same muscle strength. Why is that? Because one, even though the technique is similar on the outside, one will have a, a better coordination between the muscles involved in movement. Uh, the best example I can give you, and uh, you're well, well aware of this, is, is running, sprinting. And when you're sprinting, it's not just a matter of pushing the floor. You have uh, muscles that must relax at the proper time to allow the, the, the agonist to do their job, but then they must contract super fast to bring the leg back, and by that time, the other muscles must relax. So 
that relax, contract, relax, contract, uh, timing is very important to maximizing running speed. I mean, you can actually put the brakes on by having tension in the wrong muscle when you're running, right? So it's the same thing when, you know, uh, I'll give you an analogy. I mean, if somebody, somebody who has bad, uh, bad in, intermuscular coordination, antagonistic inhibition when they're sprinting, it's kind of like driving a car while putting your, your, your feet both on the brake and in the gas pedal. You know, you won't go anywhere. It, but it's the same thing with bench pressing, it's the same thing with squatting, deadlifting, any lift, really. You know, some muscles need to relax to allow the prime mover to work optimally. Then they must contract to stabilize depending on the phase of the lift. Mm -hmm. So even though if it, it's externally simple, what's going on inside of your body is tremendously complex. In the coordination between them, not only the coordination between the muscles involved, but also the coordination between the various fibers of a muscle that is recruited. So really, the potential for improvement is so long, is so large that you can practice a movement for years, and you will still be making strength skill improvements. So to me, if you want to master a lift, you must practice it often. That's why I believe frequency. I believe in practicing the best movement uh, as often as possible, uh, not draining the body, obviously. And you, you talked earlier about Dan John. One thing that Dan John said is that if something is worth doing, it's worth doing every day. And I believe that. Yeah, yeah. First, in my own training, in my own training, I will do a snatch variation every day. I will do a jerk variation every day. I will do a snatch variation every day. And I will do a breath variation every day. And it's not always the exact same movement, but it, it's the same movement pattern. That having been said, so when I, I, I use a variation for myself and my clients, instead of doing something that is different, like changing the grip or something like that, or making the movement a bit too different, uh, I will often just change the condition of execution. For example, I would include pauses in the movement. I will uh, slow down the eccentric. I would increase the speed of the eccentric. I will do uh, like a, a double of motion. I, mean, I will do some part of motion twice in the movement. Now, I prefer to vary the conditions under which a movement is done than changing the actual movement itself. I found that changing those conditions uh, make, you make you possible to train the same movement any and uh, every day, sometimes twice a day without uh, causing overtraining. Yeah, it's 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 interesting you bring this up because it's it's something it's something I think that due to the particularly the juggernaut guys like Chad Wesley Smith and, and Brandon Lane and them guys you know you, you get kind of a lot of novice kind of coaches young coaches and you mentioned Westside earlier on and they kind of see Westside and they're like oh you know Westside you have to vary your lifts every three weeks or you'll burn out and all this type of stuff and that's because Westside are going to max every week or that's why Louis says you need to uh, you know have that variety in your exercises and then you know Chad Wesley Smith says if you're a raw power lifter you know you have to squat bench and deadlift because yeah. that that's your sport like and he's like you know you can get variation without changing the exercise so as you said you might add a pause in slow down the eccentric speed up the eccentric there's right. many ways to get variation without actually having to change the lift and just before i let you back in it was another kind of conversation i was having with chad like i mean i was saying to him you know how much 
how much variation do you even give someone who who just wants to you know if you someone says I just want to get stronger I'm not a powerlifter but you know I'm not going to compete powerlifter but I want to get stronger and my kind of question the chat was like you know obviously with that person you can have a little more variation in the exercise selection because they're not particularly training but my question my question was then like you still want some consistency in their lifts because like when they go to test their squat bench and deadlift or squat overhead press, whatever whatever their 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 lifts are going to be to indicate their strength, they're still going to need to practice those lifts to, to, to know that they actually got truly stronger. Because how would you know then otherwise what actually worked and what didn't work? You know, because again, as you said, it's not just a physiological mechanism. There's a skill and a, a motor control mechanism to it too. So. But it's it's something that really kind of came on my radar this year. This idea of kind of you know speci- the, the, you know principle of specificity and the fact that with variation you don't actually have to change the exercise. You can just actually vary the conditions as you said around it. So it's just it's just a very interesting thing to for people I think to kind of be aware of. Well, actually, and you don't even need you know you we're talking about like including pauses, slowing down the tempo, like increasing the speed of tempo, whatever. You can just change, can use change chains, reps. you can use bands, stuff yeah. like that. That are ways of, of changing the condition, but really condition, that's not just that. A condition by definition is uh, the state you are in when you execute a movement. So just for example, changing the position of the exercise in a workout, change the conditions. Yeah. Uh, like for example, if, if I do overhead press before bench press, it's not the same condition as if I, as if I do the overhead press after the bench press. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. you actually get a different training stimulus by changing the order, and people don't think about that. It, it, they think it's trivial. I mean, I see people in the gym with their programs, right? And let's say, for example, they have to do bench press, then the incline bench press. They see that the bench press is taken, they will start with the incline, and then go back to the bench press. You see that all the time. Well, it changes the stimulus of the program. But then again, most coaches don't know how to play with that, so I guess it's not a, a problem. But, yeah. And also, just want to comment on what you, what, what you mentioned earlier. I, I honestly believe the same as, as Chad in that uh, you need to keep your basic test lifts year-round yeah. because that's the best way to know that what you're doing is working. I mean, personally, as I mentioned earlier, I'm a problem solver. So if I want to know if my solving approach is working, then I need a test lift. And that test lift has to be done year-round. Otherwise, if I stop doing it for six months or even one month, my timing is off. I'll give you an example. Um, I have a client. Right now we're focusing more. Our more important lift is the front squat because he wants to get into Olympic weightlifting. He has a decent back squat, decent deadlift, but his front squat is lagging. So I make... That is main lift that he's doing uh, four times four times a week and doing uh, year round. But you know, I will rotate in the back squat once in a while uh, just to maintain it, and uh, it goes without fail. If I if he goes more than two weeks without practicing the back squat, even though he's front squatting four times a week, his back squat will go down. His legs are not weaker because his front squat's getting bigger, uh, higher, and his deadlift's getting higher. But the back squat is going down just because he's not practicing that lift. Mm. So to me, if you want to be a master of the most important lift, you have to practice them often. Now, uh, I, will ju- I want to go back to Westside because you said something earlier about uh, they need to rotate exercise to prevent the neural breakdown. Well, well I'm, I'm, just, I'm just saying that's what Louis says. I'm not saying that's, that that's necessarily the case. That, that's something that actually is happening. I understand 
maximal centrics and the depth jump. Right? These methods are work by mostly by increasing neural factors. Mm. Neural factor improvement peaks at two or three weeks. Right? Maximal effort is all about the nervous system. It's not, you won't build that much muscle with the maximum. Actually, you won't build muscle with the maximum effort method. Uh, that's why they use higher reps on, on the other stuff. Mm. But you won't build muscle with the max effort. Max effort is all neural. And what does it say about all training method? After two or three weeks, it peaks. It stops. It stops working. So that's why, since his methods are based on a very, 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 very intense maximum stimulus, they need to change exercise every two or three weeks. Otherwise, they will not progress. They will not progress. Then again, the question is, are they really progressing? Because, you know, just because you are increasing for three weeks on a lift and going back to another lift and improving for two weeks, three weeks, doesn't mean you're necessarily getting stronger. Now, people will be quick to point out that side has many, many super strong lifters, which is true, which is true. Uh, but maybe these guys were uh, like phenoms. Maybe just the fact that you're big. Anybody who trains hard, anybody who trains hard in a competitive environment will make progress, especially if he is gifted for sport. That doesn't mean that the methods are optimal. Just look at the Bulgarian method. The Bulgarian method has produced many, many champions because when Abajayev was there, uh, they were training uh, like crazy because they had the pressure of doing what Abajayev was saying. Now that he's gone, Bulgarians are far between on level. You have Markov, but that's about it. Back then, you would have at least five or six Bulgarians medal of the world, uh, sometimes more than that. Now, if you have one, that, that's pretty good. Uh, people will be quick to point out, well, maybe they have like worse recruitment. No, they have the same number of lifters. They just don't have uh, the same competitive environment. Because back then, the, all of the national team trained with Abba Jayev, who was like uh, was a dictator and people feared him, but he actually was able to bring the best out of the guys. Now in Bulgaria, you actually have two federations. You have the separation, you have some, some people who want to stick with the old method, some, some people want to go with newer methods or different methods, and they are clashing against each other. You don't have any uh, big organization. So what happened is that you don't have the same competitive environment. You know, and Dave Tate, Dave Tate once said, you know, if you're not at West Side, it's not West Side. Yeah. Right? Yeah. When I, when I see him uh, at his compound, training top, top guys, none of them actually doing pure West Side. You know, they, but when they are all grouped together, you have 26, 30 powerlifters from the best in the U.S. all across the country, they, they meet once a, once a week, then they will go max effort just because the energy is so intense. But when by themselves, they don't necessarily use the max effort methods. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's funny because I, I'm talking to Brendan Lilly last year. He said a similar thing. He's like, you know, people think that everyone that's ever trained at Westside are always using Westside. He's like, that's just not the case either sometimes, yeah. you know. No, I mean, but it, go back, it goes back to what I was saying. If you train hard, constant, consistently, in an environment where you're challenged, you will make progress regardless of the training system. So sometimes when you analyze a training 
system, you must consider that the training environment might be responsible for a large part of the game. And if you don't have that environment, you must be objective in evaluating the training method. Yeah, yeah. Just a, a question on my mind there, in with terms of just like the maximal effort method and the Bulgarians. Obviously, I, I know it's when the Bulgarians got to that elite stage that they would have been utilizing a lot of the maximal effort method but was all of their training when they became elite was it always maximal effort every single time or was it just they built up to a certain block of that in their training uh i think that in bulgaria uh all the elite when they were training together at the national center used uh what's known as a traditional bulgarian method which is uh all of working up to a training maximum every day uh, using a very, very small selection of lifts uh, and doing those lifts daily. Uh, that, that's much it. I mean, they did front squat, they did statues, power statues, clean, power clean and jerks. Uh, sometimes back squat when they, they had some form of wrist pain or something like that. Uh, but mostly it was those, those, those five lifts. Uh, but you must understand that they went to a daily training yeah, yeah, I, I heard it. What's his name? Um, oh, uh, Perryman. He has that book, Squat Every Day. And he ta- he, in the book, he, yeah, he, he talks about, like, this is a daily max. He's like, you know, you might hit a max one day, and the next day you're squatting is 20 kilo less. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what other job did? I mean, and I think that the main reason why the Bulgarians were successful, I mean, don't, don't talk to me about that. Uh, doping product because everybody was using them so they were no different so that's that the answer uh, the big difference was that Abacheyev was a master of knowing what anybody can lift not only today but what he will be able to lift tomorrow and the day after tomorrow and the day after considering the work he's done I mean he knew that that let's say that Stephen Mana could snatch 65 today, and tomorrow he will only be able to do 155, but he'll do 160. He knew on which day which athlete could lift the biggest weight, right? That was his skill, and also because he was so hand-on, recorded every single training session, he knew the pattern of every single one of his athletes, because no athlete the exact same pattern. Some athletes, let, let's say for example myself, right? I will perform my best if I go to 80 or 85% on Monday, for example, then on Tuesday I'll be super strong. If I go lighter than 85% on Monday, I will be weaker on Tuesday. If I go heavier, I will be weaker. So, so everybody is different in that regard. Some people will actually be stronger if they go, let's say, 75% one day, 85% the next, and then max the next day. Some people will crash if they do that. So I think that the biggest of Abajayev was knowing what weight every athlete could do on every day. So what he, what he had was a sheet where the code was left that says Zlatan Vatnet on Monday you, you have to hit 160 kilo on the snatch and you have to hit 205 kilo on a clean jerk for example. So the athlete that for him that was his max training weight. Some days he might feel like, like that wasn't possible but he would still reach it. He was given uh, maybe three or four or six attempts, but they would they will, would rarely go to a point or 
they were, were missing lift after lift after lift after lift because Vajayev was so good at knowing what an athlete would be able to do for the next week that the weights he planned in advance were pretty much always correct. Sometimes the athlete needed a bit more incentive to be able to reach those weights, but he was like more often not able to reach them. Once or twice a week, were set, they were they had a session where they would go all out and they would be allowed to miss maybe a weight six times before stopping. Jesus. That was maybe once a week. People who attempt the Bulgarian system here, they think that that's what you should be doing every day. So every single workout, they work up until they hit a weight that they miss like six times. And that they will burn out the nervous system that way. Right. Uh, but JF great because he knew what an athlete would be able to do on a weekly basis. And I think that's why people try to apply the Bulgarian system, I think that's why they fail. And even the Bulgarians now, I think that's why they fail. I think that's why Azerbaijan, who Zlatan Banev is coaching there, they don't have the same success as the Bulgarian. The, the Turks, uh, Turkish has the same issue. I think those who apply the Bulgarian system, if they don't have uh, a coach that fits as good as a bad in going would not be able to live on a daily basis, they will kill their app. Yeah, yeah. Just another question then is like, you know, we just talked about you know the max max effort method there at Westside and and things like depth jump and heavy eccentrics, and we're kind of saying, you know, don't do for any longer than three weeks. But then like just again, not just to be using the Bulgarians, but I mean the Bulgarians used a max of the same list constantly when they're at so like that kind of conflicts with that but I suppose you're going to say it's because the environment they were in and they eventually just adapted to that type of training is it? Uh, well that would, that would be one thing uh, selection would be another I mean uh, by, by the time you reach national team it means that you are genetically built to handle that kind of punishment yeah, yeah I see yeah. that a lot with many of the CrossFit athletes I'm doing those who do the best are, are those who don't break under physical stress. Yeah. You have people who have a tremendous nervous system resilience. Not only nervous system, but body resilience. I mean, they, they have uh, hyper-dependent uh, nervous system is, is just like tough as hell, overproduction of neurotransmitters, they don't fatigue. So these people can handle the punishment. But then you, you also have people who have zero tolerance for high-intensity work. I always give, uh, when I give conferences, and I probably remember that example, I always give the example of a bobsleigh athlete I trained who, who was the most explosive guy I've ever trained. Yeah. Uh, he had a 42-inch vertical, uh, run a 417-40 yards dash. Uh, he ran a, something like a 639, 60 meters, but that was... Uh, that's actually faster than the world record, uh, but it was actually uh, the timer started when he first moved, so that's more like a six five, but it was still pretty fast, six five six, something like that. Uh, but he uh, was the most explosive athlete I've ever seen. Went to two Olympics. Uh, the guy could bench press uh, like like five kilos at a body weight of seventy seven kilos, eighty kilos. So that's pretty good. Uh, he, Full squat, uh, 250 kilos, power kick, 250 kilos. Uh, but that guy had the lowest tolerance for high intensity work I ever seen. The guy, if he did more than six 
nine, I am Felicity Seth. In his whole workout, I'm not talking for exercise, I'm talking whole workout. So, for example, if he did uh, three sets of three reps at 90% on squats and same on a bench press, that's all he could do. I mean, that guy had zero tolerance for it. Otherwise, he would just crash. Yeah. But, yeah. yeah, people like these are outliers. I mean, uh, I believe that the nervous system, uh, you can put like two broad. Uh, categories of, of uh, core. You can have the activation rate and you can have the resiliency. That, that's the way I put it. Resiliency is how much confidence can the nervous system handle without having symptoms of fatigue or fatigue, general fatigue or just uh, like being bad or crap or that losing motivation, stuff like that, or at a lower rate. And, and uh, then you have also of activation, which is how fast can the nervous system turn on motor units. Normally, both are actually opposite. Somebody who is very, very resilient normally has a very low recruitment rate, very low activation rate. And somebody who is a high activator normally has zero resiliency. Mm -hmm. But you have those outliers who actually have both high resiliency and high activation rate. And these guys are those who are built to be elite weightlifters. These are the guys who will not break under punishment. Yeah. And you have, uh, to me, the, the elite Olympic weightlifters uh, are next to the sprinters when it comes to activation rate, but they have the same resiliency as a, a, a Merton runner or something like that. They, they are very, very rare. That doesn't mean that if you don't have that, able to reach a very high level, but you won't be able to sustain the stress of a Bulgarian training system. Christian, I, I don't want to keep you too much longer. There's just one or two more questions that I, I, I'd love to just get your, your thoughts on. And one, one, uh, one thing that I really enjoyed from your seminar last year was uh, when you broke down the difference between the Bulgarian, Chinese and Russian weightlifting systems. Could you just do that again maybe for the listeners? I, I really found that very informative. Yeah, sure. Well, first mention first of all though that uh, in the strength training field or weightlifting field we tend to refer at like the Bulgarian school of thought uh, the Chinese school the Russian school in reality there's no such thing as a Chinese school mm. there's no such thing as a Bulgarian well the Bulgarian maybe a bit more but and there's no such thing as a Russian school the reason is that Chinese and China and Russian they have so many lifters so many different cultures big country no coach use exactly the same training system. Mm. You have you have similar principles, similar principles, but it's not necessarily like you have one template that everybody must apply. People must get that out of their head. You, know, uh, you look at, uh, let's say that you look at the, the, the Russian national team, for example, and not all the athletes train the same way. They don't use all the same exercises. Uh, they don't use the same volume, but it's still the same basic ideology. Same thing with the Chinese and the Bulgarian. Uh, I would say that personally, uh, well, the Bulgarian. I think we, we talked about uh, like many uh, the, the traditional body uh, Bulgarian method revolves around very few exercises. It's the it's uh, the uh, the perfect example of specificity. It's the perfect example of using only lifts you are going to compete in. Basically, the Bulgarian 
are the original Bulgarians. What, what is referred as a Bulgarian school of training? Uh, use the snatch, they use the clean and jerk, they use the front squat. These are their main training lifts. And sometimes they do power snatches and power clean, power jerk, or power clean and jerk. Uh, mostly for a deal. Let's say, for example, did a very, 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 very heavy snatch and injured day on Monday. Then on Tuesday, they will still go to a training max, but it will be a training max on the power snatch or power kick. Yeah, yeah. It's much less dramatic on the body. Mm. So it's their way of scaling down the intensity. You still go down to the maximum you can handle on that day, but you scale down the exercise to make it less stressful on the body. Yeah. So they're not using a lower, well, they, they are using a lower percentage, but you are still doing it as a max effort. Uh, they will sometimes use the back squat, but mostly uh, as a, an, uh, a form of deep load from the front squat. Or if they have yeah, shoulder pain or the wrist pain or elbow pain, which is pretty common in Olympic weightlifting. Mm. Uh, and if you, are, if you look at uh, the Russians, the Russians, to me, it's the, that's how I treat my athletes, my CrossFit athletes, uh, at least most of the time, uh, they use more percentages. I would say that the most important intensity range for the for the Russian lifters is 75 to 85 percent. Uh, that's where the bulk of work is being done. Lighter weight classes will use 90 percent weight a bit more often. Uh, bigger guys will stick to 75 percent. So really, uh, they try to get a lot of value in that intensity range. Mm. They also use a, a wider variation of exercises. They will use, for example, a lot of muscle snatches, a lot of feet snatches, person I call snatches. They will use uh, a lot of oh, uh, lots of deadlifting, but with the, the same technique as the clean or snap. They will use lots of lifts from blocks, which are less demanding than lifts from the floor. Mm. Uh, that allows them to do more volume because they do higher reps no way than Bulgarians. The Russians are, uh, do most of their reps in the two to four uh, reps per set on, on, on the basic lift, going up to five or six reps on their assistant lift. Doing lots of good morning, uh, Romanian deadlift, uh, stuff like that. Military presses, push presses. Uh, and what I have, uh, and in science, but it's a theory I have, uh, you know, we will have to accept that at the world-class level, most elite Olympic weightlifters are using some form of performance-enhancing drugs. Mm. We also have to agree that they are tested, and by the time they, they, they hit the stage, uh, they are pretty much clean. Mm. So they're in the same situation. They take drugs when they train, and they stop when they compete. Uh, but if you look at Bulgarian's lifters, or the Bulgarian school of thought, maybe the Turkish lifters, uh, which are pretty similar in training. Uh, you also have uh, Azerbaijani lifters, which are pretty similar. You seem to have a bigger drop in performance between training lifts and competition lifts. Mm, that could be because in, in training, uh, they always go to the max, uh, so they, they might miss six times, but they will make one, and it, that, that's just the one that you hear about. Uh, work in competition, you can't afford to miss those weights. But then again, they are 
wings so heavy, so often will be good at handling maximum weight. Uh, when the Russian lifters, and even more the Chinese lifters, they don't have much of a drop-off between their best, best performance in training and their best performance competition. And my opinion is that the, the wider exercise selection and the higher number of reps per set will probably build more muscle, okay? So when they stop the drug, they have more reserve muscle mass, so that even if they lose some muscle mass, they still have enough muscle to perform well competition exercise. See what I mean? Bulgarian mm, mm. lifters who only do the competition lift, they will not build as much muscle mass because it's in snatches for one rep, feet for one rep, front squat for one rep, you won't build a lot of muscle with that, right? If you use drugs, you can build some muscle with that regimen. But when you stop the drugs, you will quickly lose the, the, the hypertrophy you build. And just doing the lift themselves won't be enough to maintain the muscle mass you have. So they probably lose more muscle mass uh, and they have less muscle mass to start with, start with so they lose more strength. And the, the consistency of their lift is lesser because they don't have the muscle to hold the, hold the positions. Whereas the Russians, by building more muscle uh, with assistance exercises and the higher rep rate, have more reserve and they lose less for competition. Yeah. I think the Chinese, they do something similar because the Chinese is pretty similar to the Russians. The biggest difference, I would say, is that they also do plenty of bodybuilding stuff. I mean, uh, dips, chin-ups, even biceps work, a lot of triceps. Extension, barbell rowing, dumbbell rowing, lots of stuff like that. Like uh, they do like four or five sets of ten to twelve reps of several bodybuilding exercises after after every training session for thirty to forty minutes per day. So they will build even more muscle. To me, the more muscle a lifter has, the less strength he will lose uh, when he has to come off the drugs. To and even if we're talk, talking about a lifter who's competing clean without drugs. Um, slifters, they still go back, well, when they do a peaking phase for a competition, they go back using only almost competition lifts and for, for very low reps because you're peaking on those movements. Or even a natural lifter who has used more uh, assistance exercises and higher reps uh, will be able to sustain his muscle mass better and lose less strength for competition and will actually peak higher. Now, might say that this might be contrary to what I was saying earlier about doing the main lifts, uh, the main lift, or as the Russians are doing more assistance exercises, which is what I believe in. The difference is that the assistance lifts uh, are, are done on top of the main lift. I mean, they will snatch every day, and they will do a snatch pull and uh, snatch with a behind the neck press, for example. Yeah, yeah. So they are doing the main lift and doing to normally two assistance exercise uh, for that lift to build the muscles and each range point in the range of motion of that lift. So basically we believe in becoming technical master of the lift and then making the muscles involved in the main lift as strong as possible and strengthening every single position involved in it. So is, is the only real difference between the Chinese and Russian system is that the Chinese probably have a wider array of 
assistance work. And do, do the Chinese go a little more to max though than the Russians? Do they spend a little yeah, more? They, they, I think they go heavier. Uh, they go a bit heavier on the actual uh, competition lift most of the year. As yeah. I mentioned, the the Russians for most of the year it's seventy five to eighty percent, eighty five percent. That's the main training range. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they will up to go to the ninety ninety five percent range. Uh, but most of it, it's really seventy five to eighty five percent. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. But actually, it, that's why you know if you look, look at training videos of the Russian team, for example. It almost looks boring because you rarely see the maximum lift. Yeah. But it's always precise, high skill, perfect execution, perfect rhythm, and they rarely miss a lift in competition because of that, because they are so solid. Whereas the, the Chinese, it's a bit more, they will go heavier on main competition lift. Almost Bulgarian like, really. Oftentimes they will ramp up a max for the day. Then they will back up and do three or four uh, set two reps with 80% of their for the day. Uh, and then will do their assistance work. So in that sense, uh, it's almost like it's almost like a Bulgarian, uh, but with less volume of maximum work and more assistance work. Mm. But, uh, yeah, I think that the, the Chinese really took more, uh, they took the, the, the Russian system and they adapted it a bit. Kind of like what Cuba did. I mean, Cuba... Uh, which was once a power in Olympic weightlifting, uh, they took the Russian system because back then they were, well, they still are coming to the country, but well, when, uh, uh, when Russia was USSR, uh, they actually catered to the, the other communist countries, and uh, that, was, that was true for the, the, the sporting organization, and the Russian coaches would go to Cuba, or the coaches would go to Russia to learn from the Russian coaches. So the, the Cuban system of weightlifting, which was one of the best for a long time, uh, was heavily influenced by the Russian system with several some, some small modifications. Uh, and I think that uh, it's the best system. It's the system that allows the most longevity. It's a system that allows you to build more muscle, and that gives you the best uh, competition performance. Uh, just one or two more questions then, Christian, and I'll, I'll let you go. Uh, you talked earlier on about, you know, ego being a problem in the industry and, and that you don't have any ego. And uh, the next question I, I'm going to put to you definitely shows you don't have an ego. Um, I really loved your article, a, a CrossFit Apology, you know, and, and again, this kind of proves that you, you're definitely not someone who has an ego because, you know, you, you said that you changed your mind, you gave it a go, and it really opened up your eyes to a whole other world. So... What are your thoughts on CrossFit now, and, and what are some of the sort of uh, you know in that article you, you were saying you know that that CrossFit at least you know they they, they they get good hypertrophy some of their training methods like you know you were saying like there's nothing like doing an Olympic lift when your heart rate's going 200 beats per minute like nothing so you, you you seem to see a lot of good in CrossFit so maybe just touch on that. Well, first of all, what, what, right now as I mentioned earlier, I mean uh, I say that almost eighty percent of the
those who are doing CrossFit training the best, right? Uh, and I'm going to give some props to them. Uh, they are, uh, the two guys are uh, Rock Croteau and Karim Elimi, uh, who are two CrossFit coaches. Uh, their gym is called uh, CrossFit Pro Watt. They actually went to the CrossFit game as a team this year. And, and I really love what you're doing. Basically what I'm doing, my, my CrossFit athletes are really, for most of them, they're athletes. They are doing the training program, and I'm doing the Olympic lifting program. So they're basically doing the Metcon, I'm doing the Olympic weightlifting. So we're working hand in hand in that. And I, and, and I went, you know, I, I work closely with them. And, and what I like about them, and I'm going to tell you what I like about them and what I think is the future of CrossFit. First of all, I believe, they believe and I believe that the future, if you want to be good at CrossFit, you first of all have to be good at the Olympic lifts. Yeah. Uh, to me, those who win CrossFit competitions are the best weightlifters. Uh, to quote one of the CrossFit girls I'm training, uh, nobody wins a competition on, on body weight exercises because at that level, they're pretty much all the same. You, you have Kemi, who was great at uh, the butterfly pull-ups who might get a slight advantage here, but she won't win just because she's good on body weight. She's a great lifter too. So to me, if you want to be good at CrossFit, you have to be good at the Olympic lifts. You have to be good at the Olympic lifts. And if you want to be good at the Olympic lifts, you have to be strong. So these two guys, uh, that's why we work well together. Uh, I would say that 75 of the program, well, at least 60% of the program is Olympic lifting and strength work. The metabolic conditioning work, it's, it's always done afterwards, and it's not even every single day. You know, I see it more like, uh, like practicing your sport. So, but but I, I personally train them just like I would train any Olympic weightlifter. In fact, uh, I, I'm bringing them, uh, like a few of them, to a, a weightlifting competition, and I want to qualify them for nationals. A uh, few of them could qualify for nationals in Olympic weightlifting. Um, so that's my first belief. You need to be good at the Olympic lift, and to be good at the Olympic lift, you need to be strong. So you, CrossFit now, the way it's oriented, it's going to be more like oriented towards strength Olympic lifts. Uh, another thing I really like about their mentality, right, and that's where I connect with them and I agree with that, uh, training is training. It's not testing, right? I, I, I mentioned that earlier. So when they do it, when the athletes that I work with are doing a Metcon section, they don't have ab wraps, they don't have pipe gaps, they don't have uh, as many reps as possible, as many reps as possible. They have a planned workload, and they try to go do it fast. It's a metabolic conditioning session, but they never sacrifice quality for speed, and they never go like a. a 10 on 10 on, on the uh, effort scale. It's always an 8 or even uh, sometimes a 9, but it's never a 10. Uh, they don't believe, and I don't believe either, that you need to go all out to improve. I mean, it, it, even sprinters, they rarely go to 100% when they're sprinting. You know, 85% effort is enough. So they, they don't emphasize speed, they emphasize keeping the heart rate up while doing the work. So to me, that's something that's really smart. That, that actually makes CrossFit training manageable. I think the big issue with CrossFit training is when you try to go too fast because you want to beat somebody. You want to beat yourself or somebody else. Mm. And then you start to do reps that are not good. And you don't learn to manage your energy. 
So it's always better. Remember, I'll give you the analogy earlier. Remember when I talked about strongmen of the past? Yeah. When they lifted, well, they lifted heavy weight, their goal was not so much to lift heavier and heavier weights. It was make heavier weights feel easier, right? Yeah, yeah. So it's the same thing. You, know, you take a certain type of metabolic conditioning, you don't necessarily want to go faster and faster. You want to make that same load feel easier and easier. Mm. So when you're in a competition, first of all, you're fresh. And you have that extra speed that you can like turn into. Whereas if you always train on a nerve or train on, on your maximum effort, you'll be burned out. So that's the first thing I like. Uh, another thing is, and that's true for CrossFit Pro One with whom I work. It's also true for Sonic CrossFit, which is where I work. Uh, that we don't have scoreboard. You know, a big in CrossFit is the scoreboard that uh, you have the one. And at the end of the one, the coach asks, well, what was your time? Uh, so he writes down 24 minutes, 41 seconds. So everybody can compare themselves, right? And actually, that, that's pretty a good selling point of CrossFit because many people want to compare themselves. But to me, that's probably the biggest problem with CrossFit. Because that people, when you want to be, automatically, when you post your score on board, you want to impress people, you want to compete against people, you start to do reps that are not good, that are not effective, that are dangerous. Uh, sometimes you don't even count reps, uh, you don't learn to manage your effort, and you go into overload, and that will actually prevent you from training hard the next day. So the, that board, that scoreboard, in my opinion, for training purposes, I mean, for competition, you need it. But for training purposes, that's probably the worst enemy of CrossFit. And where I work at, took that board away. Because the average CrossFit box, CrossFit gym, people won't have a good score. So if they start doing power cleans the wrong way or really like not acceptable form, if the coach goes to them and say, well, and try to coach them a bit, the athlete won't listen because, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get a slow time here, all right? Just coach me afterwards. But he's going to do the workout with bad technique, right? Mm. What I work at, if somebody is doing a bad power, bad deadlift, the coach will go up to her, and they will work on even if it takes five minutes because it doesn't matter because it doesn't have to register time. It will still go fast, try to go fast, but not at the expense of form, and there's a lot more coaching going on. Mm. These are important things. And yes, uh, we have a lot more, uh, even bodybuilding work. We do a lot of isolation. For example, there's this one guy, tremendous athlete. I mean, um, I posted a video uh, of him earlier, either on my Facebook or whatever. Uh, he was uh, 142 kilos clean. Uh, not a very small guy, not big, but technically perfect. But the guy is like breaks at everything, and what I found out is that you know one thing that uh, CrossFit relaxes is eccentric strength, right? And people don't know that. But really, when you think about it, in CrossFit training, if you don't do anything else but CrossFit training, you rarely train eccentric actions, right? You have the Olympic lifts, you drop the bar every time. Uh, when you want to go fast in the wall, you're doing deadlift. You're actually balancing the bar on the floor. You don't control it on the way down. Uh, when you do kettlebell swings, you don't like, control the eccentrics either. When doing kipping pull-ups, butterfly pull-ups, box jumps, yes, you load eccentric with the shot, but you never control the eccentric. See what I mean? And I think that because of that, we have these athletes 
actually are all weaker eccentrically, which is rare, but it happens. And especially they, they can't, they don't have the skill to control an eccentric movement. And if you don't have that skill, you can't control concentric movements either properly if momentum stops helping you. So you, I think that, and also uh, obviously the fact that eccentric clothing strengthens the tendons. So I think a lot of injuries from CrossFit can actually come from uh, the imbalance between concentric and isometric eccentric strength. So the thing I'm doing with a lot of my CrossFit athletes is doing some form of isometric and eccentric loading, even if it's isolation, especially for the shoulder joint, because the shoulder joint is where most pain happens. Mm. I think you were saying too that they, their low backs are so strong because of all like the high volume low back uh, stimulus they get from all the exercises. And again, like if they're doing like deadlifts for time, like they're just getting so much volume into their low backs. They have these wickedly strong low backs. You were saying in your article as well. Yeah, it, 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 it's a weird thing though because. They have strong low back, but back positional strength in some positions. Yeah. There's a difference between having the muscle strength to go from point A to point B. It's a different thing to be able to hold a specific position under load. For example, uh, let's say I have a lot of, uh, I've seen a lot of CrossFit athletes or, or regular people uh, who have strong lower back. But they can't hold an arch lower back when deadlifting 100, uh, 100 kilos, even if they can deadlift 200. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You'd think it's not possible, but it happens. Yeah. It's, yeah, just so. that, it's just that motor. That, it's just a motor program. Again, it's, it's just if, if that's what you do, that's, that's what you're going to. If that's a stimulus you're giving your body, that's what you're going to adapt to. So it's like it's their motor program now. Oh, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so, so that's why for the Olympic, when I make the lift cross it athlete. I do a lot of pauses during the lift yeah. to strengthen the important positions, mm. and that, 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 that's working very well. And again, we, we, even though we don't train uh, like super heavy all the time, uh, they're all eating big PRs. Uh, one thing I also started experimenting with, with, uh, with my CrossFit competitors, and that's working very well, is I, I use what's called the accentuation principle. Right? Uh, if you read that Tiorski, uh, accentuation means uh, training the range of motion that you need the most in your sport, yeah. right? Uh, for example, if you're a volleyball player, uh, the most, the lowest you will go down is maybe a, a half squat and that's being generous, right? So accentuation would mean doing half squats or even quarter squat. Well, I started doing the same thing, and I'll tell you why. Uh, personally, I don't that the most important joint angle for the knee, the knee and hip, I mean, uh, for the Olympic lift is a knee angle of about 20 degrees. Uh, when you explode, uh, you know, for example, the snatch when you explode from the hips, or a thing when you explode from the upper thigh, or the jerk when you explode from the dip, normally look at all the best lifters, and they have basically 120 degrees knee angle, maybe like 115 to 125 range, but it's pretty much one point. So you really want to be super powerful at that and also have the torso strength to transfer force to the barbell from that position. So what I found is that when you do full squats, for example, you full front squat or back squat, uh, that, that position, 120 degrees, is actually
actually undertrain because it's always stronger than full squat, for example, right? So the weight you can use on a full squat is always lower than you can do on a quarter or half squat. So the quarter to half squat never gets stimulated much, right? Now you can come back and say, well, why don't you use chains or band? I use chains. The problem is that what I found is that I can't squat frequently with chains. It gets me sore too much. Once a week I can, but two or three times a week I can with chains. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because of, you are still known in the stretch position that causes too much muscle problem, in my opinion. That's how it works. Uh, so what I start doing is that I, I still squat once a day, uh, once a week, for example, where I can do uh, like between a, or a squats from 110 degree angle, the angle, uh, front squat or back squat every single day, and I don't get sore. And what happens is that you get stronger in the position specific to where you propel the barbell in the air. When you think about it, what is the role of the body in equipment? The first role of the body is to bring the barbell to the power position. Yeah, yeah. Power position, for example, the snatches at the hips with 120 in the angle. So the role, the first role of the body is to get the bar there. To me, that's not built with squat. That's built with deadlift and pulls, right? With the same position as you would during an Olympic team. Not in powerlifting deadlift. The second role is, as I mentioned earlier, once you reach that power position, is to propel the barbell in the air, creating upward momentum, almost at jump-like action. So you need to have the most out possible from that 20 degrees angle. That's the second role of the left. The third role, is to recover from a clean if you go down to a full squat. Yeah, that's a front squat. Uh, you don't actually need the overhead squat, in my opinion, if you have strong legs. Just positional work. Uh, so really what you need is deadlift to build the strength to bring the bar in a power position. You need uh, the, the half squats to be strong at 120-degree angle. And you need a front squat to be strong at recovering from cleans. If you want to focus on the Olympic lift, that's all you need to do. The back squat should be done uh, as a reduced form of load uh, stress compared to the, the front squat, or if somebody really has low, a very low uh, leg strength, then the back squat can be a useful exercise. Uh, but to me, it should be a uh, great result for that. Uh, for example, one of my CrossFit athletes, the guy I tested this method with, uh, once a week we did uh, front squats, three times a week we did uh, back, uh, partial twice front, once back, always at the 110 degree angle. I want to start a bit lower or carry over to the full squat. And what happened is that in a three-week period, um, obviously it's the same three weeks I was mentioning earlier, uh, in that three-week period, his snatch uh, went from 95 kilos uh, and he hit uh, 115 kilos uh, this week. So it's actually like a 20 kilo improvement pretty pretty vast. Uh, his clean went from 130 kilos to 145 kilos, which is also a steep increase. His front squat went from 150 kilos to 165 kilos, which is also pretty good uh, doing front squat once a week. And I'm doing that with, I, I started doing that with uh, my other athletes also with the week they all have significant PRs on Olympic list. I use that myself, and my clean also skyrocket. So well, well, 
what did you say his front squat went from? Just there. Uh, well, I, I'm, I'm, I'm counting my head because it's in pounds. Uh, you went from uh, 330, so that's about 150 kilos. Yeah. Okay, no, I just I just I kind of skipped the audio there, so I just didn't hear it. Yeah. That's uh, like like that's that's like that that's, makes a lot of sense, you know, because again, you you know the the whole idea of the first pull and the Olympic lift is to set up a perfect second pull. So if you get stronger in that second pull, the power position, that would make sense that strengthening that quarter position would carry over to your Olympic lifts. Yeah, but, but as, I, as I mentioned, it, since it's a very early, the, the games are neural most of the most part, and that's a good thing. That's fine. Works for three weeks, so we do that. that we, uh, we do the accentuation uh, for three weeks, so that's three partial squats a week, one full squat, which is a plus squat a week. We also do pulls, obviously, and then afterwards we will reverse the order. So for three weeks, we will do the opposite. We will do squats three times a week, and we will keep the partial, the partial back squat once a week. By the way, those partials are done for the They are not done like standing squat. It's a freestanding squat, it's not in this machine, but uh, I start the bar from bends uh, instead of just starting like a squat and going down a halfway. First of all, because I want to be sure to be able to like have the proper angle all the time, I find that if I, I don't put any bends and I just tell them to go down 120 degrees, most of the time they, they will miss the spot. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they also get out of position. So for, for me, you can go heavier from bends. Uh, you can do it more often. It's actually you decrease the eccentric loading, so you get less sore. You do the movement more often. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And really, when, when that second pull, you what you want is the explosion. You don't you don't need the eccentric right at the back. Exactly. So for the three weeks after that, we will squat three times a week, never maximum, but just squatting, transferring that for the, that strength of squat, and just giving a partial once a week, maintain the adaptations. Could you not use that method for longer than three weeks because it's only concentric? Probably. Well, it's not so much of the stress. It's, you, know, you can do it without stress. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's not the stress. It's the fact that rapid adaptation are pretty much done after three weeks. And I believe that if you go away from it for three to four weeks and you go back from it, you will get a, a bigger strength increase. Yeah, yeah. Where, where does that come from, that magical three weeks in the CNS? Is it just Verkashansky and... Or? Actually, it's, it's a, a Canadian physiologist called... Uh, Sally, uh, that, that, that did research on your adaptation. Say, say his name again there, Christian. It's one, uh, if you look for it, it's uh, the uh, big B-I-G-B-Y-S-A-L-E, Big B Sally. All right, I'll get that off you. He's probably one of the best. His work on nervous system adaptation to training is one of the foundation of our knowledge. Christian, just my last question, because uh, I love this. I really love this article, so like I, I really wanted to get you to. I've loads of other questions, but well, I must get you back on. Uh, your your article, the twenty two proven rep schemes. I love that article on T Nation. So you went for pure strength gains and then strength and size and hypertrophy. And uh, I suppose the main sort of question I'm going to say to you or ask you is about you. You seem to have a huge fondness for wave loading or ratchet loading. Um, why is that? Like, why do you love wave loading so much? Well, first of all, wave, first of all, wave loading is misunderstood, right? Uh, wave loading. Uh, let, let's let's 
take away the way that the three two one way, for yeah. example. Yeah. The important sets are the three and two. It's not the one. Right? Uh, the one only potentiates you for the system three. But uh, I'll go uh, I'll go back to that. To me, the benefit of waves is not is so much physiological as it is psychological. Yeah. Okay? yeah. But that doesn't to me the important anything that will get the athlete to be more focused and train more coordinated works. I don't care if it's a parlor trick or if it's physiological. Right? I'm not saying waves are, are a parlor trick, but the way they work, personally, uh, the reason why I'm, I'm a low reps guy. I, I hate doing high rep or higher reps. Even three reps I don't like. But but you need the if you want to build strength. You don't build strength with sets of one. You build strength with sets of three reps. Uh, even four or five. So to me, when I do waves, every single set become, become, uh, becomes more pleasing or, yeah. or less demanding. See you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. You, you, said that, you said this in your article. You're like, because psychologically, you're like, oh, I only have to do two reps instead of three here, but the weight yeah. is heavier. Even, even if it's heavier, even if it's heavier, you perceive the set as easier. Oh yeah, always, always. It's the same. Yeah, it's it, yeah, it's exactly like if you're doing like a set of uh, like I hate I hate Bulgarian split squats. I have like a love hate relationship with them. But like if I'm doing if I'm like right, I have an option to do uh, the same weight as last week, but for one extra rep, or I could do do heavier weight for the same rep. So like I'm just gonna put heavier weight on. Oh no, exactly. exactly. <laughs> what happens, and what happens with waves? You, know, uh, you start a new wave. It again feels easier because for example, okay, I'm doing say. It's tricking them psychologically and almost physiologically.
not everything has to be based in physiology. If, it were in, if it's based in psychology, it works. That's fine. Yeah, yeah. It's brilliant stuff. Christian, finally, just any advice to any coaches out there? And then finally, where can people find out more about you? Well, uh, advice. Uh, you do, I think I would just like go full circle here is that uh, and not just for up and coaches, for the healthy coaches is drop the ego, please. Ego, yeah. I mean, the, the less ego we have in this business, the more we will all learn and the better we'll be off. I mean, if you're good, if you're a good coach, you don't need to uh, reject others, you don't need to make fun of others, you don't need to disrespect training methods just because you don't like them. I mean, personally, I, I don't like bodybuilding type training. I don't like superset, drop set, whatever, but I understand that they can work. Even just because I don't like them, I don't I criticize them. Uh, no, drop the ego. We all need together. Always try to learn from everybody. Even if you're the top of, the, of your game, you can always learn something. And always give back to anybody you can. I mean, share the knowledge, share the passion. To me, that's the most important thing. As for where you can find me, well, a pretty easy find on, on, on tnation.com. I weekly articles there. Also, have my online training logs. I have over 400,000 uh, visits. Uh, I have q and forum. People can come ask me questions. Normally, I, I, I'm pretty good at answering questions. I mean, I, I can't answer everybody because I, I only have 24 hours in a, week, in a day, but uh, I really try to answer as many people as I can. I mean, sometimes, for example, just like last week, a guy where I posted a video of his snatch and clean, and he wanted a critique. So I gave him my advice, and I replied, well, you can't really like, just convey the message with text. So I sweat my back uh, and just film myself to give him a good answer. That's the kind of service you get, and you don't have to pay anything for it. Great stuff, great stuff. And just for anyone listening to Christian's also the author of some of my favorite training books. One is The Theory and Application of Modern Strength and Power Methods, and the black book of uh, the black book of training secrets so they're also well worth checking out and obviously i'll put a link to christian's website in the show notes so christian timido thanks so much for coming on to the podcast just hold on for maybe half a minute after i press stop here uh, when i wrap up the show so just for everyone listening guys keep uh, leaving reviews on itunes and keep downloading the podcast and supporting the podcast and make sure you check out our show sponsor upmentorship.com and get out get over there and support the podcast so Thanks again to Coach Christian Thibodeau and thanks to you guys for listening. Talk to you soon. Be well and stay strong.